This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. There's something interesting about the end of the passage in chapter 6. Two interesting things. One is that uh, that's where the name of our intern came from, Nicholas. Uh, His is spelled without the H. So he's named after this, um, you know, guy from Antioch, who's one of the seven chosen to serve tables. That's why he's quite good at serving tables. <laughs> now the, the other interesting thing is how Luke ends this account in verse 7. You see there it says, so the word of God spread. Now this is a phrase that Luke will use repeatedly, and this is the first time he uses it here. And this marks the first major section in the book of Acts. How from here, uh, the ministry to Jerusalem is concluding, and it will push on from here into Samaria. And Luke wants to give us his assessment of the things in Jerusalem, that the word of God spread. And it spread in spite of Satan's strategies. In spite of Satan's strategies to try and contain and disrupt, the word of God nevertheless spread. Now we have seen some of Satan's strategies to try and uh, disrupt the word of God. In the passage before this, we had Ananias and Sapphira. And that is an example of Satan trying to use you know, internal spiritual failure, you know, try to um, disrupt the church and the spread of the word of God through corruption. So that's one of his strategies. And we will see him using, again, uh, the tool of persecution. We've seen that in other passages. And in chapter 5, again, he will come back to use that tool uh, through external opposition to try and silence the apostles. And then we will see in chapter 6 that he will use division. So three of Satan's strategies. And then interestingly, after chapter 6, verse 7, he will come back to use the tool of persecution again. And I think what Luke wants to show us is as the early church overcame these obstacles, as they overcame Satan's strategies to try and silence them, as they overcame, God, through the apostles, the early church, cause the word of God to spread. So friends, those of us here who who care about the spread of the word of God, but then when we see this assessment, ah, the word of God spread, and it brings a, a delight, a joy, an excitement to our hearts, then we will do well to pay attention to what Luke is teaching us here. What he is teaching us about the strategies of Satan, what he is teaching us about how to overcome Satan's strategies, his obstacles. Because we must care that the word of God is spreading. Because if it is not spreading in us and through us, then that's a sign that there is a lack of genuine life. But in a place where God is is through the people causing his word to spread, to go forth, then that is a sure sign that God is at work, the Spirit is at work, that there is genuine life. So please uh, pray with me as we ask God to help us. 
truly see and learn from this passage. Thank you so much, Father, for your word in our hands. Thank you so much that it is you, by your spirit, who enable us to see. Father, help us to see clearly the, the strategies of the evil one and how till today he is still using those same strategies to try and disrupt, to try and stop. But Father, please help us to know so that we may counter, to know so that we may trust you, to know so that we may be ready, and so that the word of God may continue to spread even through us, from us outwards and beyond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now before we talk about the strategies of Satan, there is the issue in verse 12 that we need to answer, I think. The apostles perform many signs and wonders among the people, and some of which is uh, miraculous healing. And the question that uh, I guess needs to be addressed is, does this happen today? Should we expect that these signs and wonders should happen in our, our day and age as well? And the answer is no. The answer is no. Now, even though there are some people and, in fact, uh, you know, large movements of Christians, some conferences, uh, notably this one called Kingdom Invasion, that try to teach that we should be expecting uh, God to be working in us, signs and wonders amongst His church. We should be expecting that, you know, uh, for every Christian to be performing it, we should be expecting that uh, even on a daily basis. Uh, that, I think, is in error. Because the term signs and wonders is used in the Bible to authenticate the apostles' ministry. And the apostles have a unique role in the church. Uh, pastors that come after them, popes, bishops, whatever, they do not have the same role as the apostles of uh, explaining and teaching what the gospel is. All we do is to take what the apostles have taught and pass it on. But it is the apostles who first have to who teach and explain what the gospel is from Jesus Christ. And the signs and wonders that accompany the ministry is given by God to authenticate that, yes, these are his chosen messengers. So no, we should not be expecting signs and wonders in our day and age because that unique role of the apostles have passed. But then to be... Uh, clear about the issue, while we don't expect signs and wonders, we can expect God to sometimes use miracles. That means to use uh, in a supernatural way to do something, to bring healing or something else. That, God is free to act, but they are not signs and wonders. Okay, I hope that's clear. If it's not, please uh, come and speak to me. So what happens is because of the signs and wonders, because of the teaching of the apostles, you see in verse 14, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Now, what this does is that it makes the Jewish religious leaders jealous. We can see that in verse 17. The priests and his associates, the members of the Sadducees, they were all filled with jealousy. Because they were going, eh, why are they so successful? Why is everyone flocking to them? Why is everyone believing them? And so they were filled with jealousy. And because of that, they arrested the apostles and put them in jail. So this is the opposition that the apostles is facing. 
they are being put in jail and they are being put in jail as an attempt to silence them. But you see what happens. The angel comes during the night, open the doors and quietly let them out. Such that even the jailer doesn't know. And the angel says, okay, you know, now that you're out, go, continue, tell people about Jesus. And so the apostles do that, so that in verse 21, they enter the temple courts, and as they had been told, they continue telling the people about Jesus. Now, what happens is, uh, you know, when the high priest and his associates arrive, I mean, just imagine them coming with all their, their dress and their costume, all, you know, all the things that they're carrying, they're coming, and then they're expecting Ah, this is the day we are going to judge these apostles. They come and then, you know, they go through their, their ceremony and then word arrives that, hey, the apostles are not in the jail. Ha! Huh? Who let them out? Then the jailer goes, no, no, no. The door is secure. Everything is locked. The, the soldiers are there. They didn't fall asleep, you know. But the apostles are gone. And then as this is happening, someone comes. Uh, high priest, high priest. You know, the guys that you locked up, that you told them, don't talk about Jesus. <laughs> That's what they're doing now in the temple courts. The guys that were supposed to be in the jail, that you locked up, telling them not to speak about Jesus, well, they are there in the temple courts doing exactly that. You see, none of you are laughing. Only my wife is like smiling. Oh, you know, he's so animated. Yeah, this and that. But we are meant to be laughing because it's meant to be comic. Ah, these high priests, they think they come, they think that they can silence and, you know, lock the word of God under uh, lock and chain. But actually the apostles are free and they are at that moment proclaiming to the people about Jesus. Now I think what this teaches us is that I think we need to learn, we need to learn to laugh. We need to learn to laugh at the attempts of the evil one to try and silence, to try and, you know, lock down the word of God. Because rather than cower back in fear, rather than to be shocked into silence, paralyzed in fear and you know, not opening our mouths, we need to learn to laugh. To laugh at their ultimately pathetic attempts to try and silence the people of God from speaking the word of God. Because did Jesus not say in Luke chapter 12, verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And so if we don't fear those who can only kill the body, but fear him who has the ultimate authority. Then Jesus says in verse 8, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others 
will be disowned before the angels of God. We need to see the attempts of the world of the evil one as ultimately fruitless, ultimately pathetic. Yes, what we're going through, it may not be funny, but we need to ultimately learn to laugh because God will have the victory because His gospel, His purpose is unstoppable. And we see that in uh, verse 27 onwards as the apostles were brought in and they were questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And what the apostles say in response is, yeah, 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 I know you said this, but we must obey God rather than you. Now, why are the apostles so adamant that speaking about Jesus, telling people about Jesus is the way to obey God? Now, obviously, I think, I mean, these Jewish religious leaders, I mean, like on one level, you would imagine that they are also trying their best to obey God. Right? I mean, they're not trying to like deliberately go against God. I mean, I think on one level, they are trying to obey God. But the apostles, they say, no, no, no. The way to obey God is to keep preaching about Jesus. And the reason for that is because he says in verse 20, because the God of our ancestors, we must obey this God in speaking about Jesus because this God has raised Jesus from the dead. See, you killed him. He really died. But God has raised him from the dead and God has exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour. You see, God has made it clear by the raising of Jesus from the dead that this is his prince. This is his chosen king. This is the savior who will bring repentance and forgiveness of sins to the ends of the earth. That's why we must obey God because God has made it clear that this Jesus is that promised king. And so the Religious leaders are furious. And then a Pharisee named Gamaliel speaks up. And when we're reading it, hopefully you picked it up. Uh, basically, his logic is that, well, remember, in the past, there were these two guys. They rose up. And for a while, you know, people followed them. But ultimately, because they were not from God, their mission failed. You know, their movement died. And so, you know, these apostles, these guys that you are, you know, trying to silence and shut up, if what they are doing is ultimately not from God, but simply human origin, then it too will die out. But the warning is on the flip side, what if it is from God? What if what they are speaking is truly what God has given them to say? Then you are, you are then banging yourself, setting yourself up against God. And that is not the thing that you want to be doing. And so God uses the wisdom from Gamaliel and they let the apostles go. But first they, since they are in their custody, just whip them first, huh? show them who's, who's, who's in power, but let them go. And then the apostles continue speaking about God. And the point that I think God, uh, through Gamaliel, is making is, yes, the word of God is opposed but it is ultimately unstoppable. 
Because it is from Him, God will make sure His purposes will go forth. His word is unstoppable. Now my son, as he uh, has entered secondary school, has picked up the game of basketball, which was what you know his dad used to indulge in at that age. And in my time, there was a phenomenon a phenomenon in the NBA by the name of Shaquille O'Neal, who is 2 meters, 8, 16 uh, cm tall. That's, that's, that's really tall. He is 147 kilos, almost three times my weight. No, 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 kidding. Um, he's one of the heaviest players ever to play in the NBA. And he's, you know, when he, when he gets the ball and he turns around, you know, people fly away. Because just that movement, you know, people will fly and he's like, he's like the unstoppable force. Now, so what would you feel if you had to play against Shaquille O'Neal? I mean, you'd be, I mean, you'd be worried. Right? How could you go up the, uh, go up against the unstoppable force? But then again, what if Shaquille O'Neal was on your side? And then you will be filled with confidence. Yes, we can do this. We can win this game. The unstoppable force is on our side. Friends, what we need to recognize is that the word of God, yes, it is opposed. Yes, the devil and the world tries all sorts of ways to stop it, disrupt it, silence it. But ultimately, it is unstoppable. And I think we are meant to learn to come and see that as we grow in our conviction that it, it, it is unstoppable, that we should go from being spectators, you know, not just, oh, you know, sitting at the side, oh, Shaquille O'Neal doing that, wow, so great, but we are being called to play with him, to play alongside him, to play with someone that is unstoppable, to labor for what God is doing, for something that ultimately will be successful, no matter how it looks today. Are you convinced that the gospel is an unstoppable force? Because if you're not, just look around you. Look, just look. Look at the people around you. In spite of all the persecutions that has been thrown at Christians down throughout church history is come to us. It is the unstoppable force. So friends, as we see that, yes, we may face opposition, yes, it may be unpopular to talk about Jesus in the family, in the workplace, but know that as you open your mouth in dependence on Jesus to do so, you are participating in something. It's ultimately unstoppable. It will reach the ends of the earth. Every name that is in the Lamb's book of life will hear the gospel, will come to faith. God's purpose will succeed. The only question I think is, will it happen through you, through me? It will happen. Now, will it happen to us? Will we take up the mantle, have the privilege of actually 
laboring with God in something that will be accomplished. So Satan has tried um, corrupting the church early on in chapter 5. He's tried persecution again in chapter 5. And then now he moves on to a different strategy. And here he moves on to the strategy of uh, division. So you see there in verse 6, uh, oh, sorry, chapter 6, verse 1, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So what is the tactic that Satan is using here? You see this, uh, who are these Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews? Okay, so obviously they are both Jews. Okay, it's just that one is, has grown up in, you know, among Greek culture and has adopted, you know, Greek dress, Greek way of eating, uh, you know, so they speak predominantly in the Greek language. Whereas the Hebraic Jews are those who grew up in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem and they have kept more to the Jewish culture, Jewish way of life and they are more fluent in, you know, Hebrew, Aramaic. It's just like, the Chinese from China will have you know, Chinese culture, and then the Chinese that grew up in France or Germany will have obviously adopt those cultures and probably not very good at Chinese, you know, more fluent in German, French, etc. So that's the situation here, that there's these Jews that have been influenced by Greek culture, speak Greek language, they've come to Jerusalem, you know, maybe to settle there because even though they haven't grown up in Jerusalem, but you know maybe they are still pious, they want to end their life uh, in the Holy Land. So they are there and they've come to Christ because the apostles have been proclaiming Jesus, they've come to Christ. And the situation is that there are widows and a widow is someone who is unable to earn their own living and if they don't have relatives to depend on, the church has come together uh, brought money, put money together so that these widows can be supported. And the issue is that the Hellenistic widows, they're, they're not getting their fair share. Now, Luke doesn't go into the reason why, you know, the, you know, Hebrew speaking Jews, the, the widows, they are getting more, why the Hellenistic Jews, widows, they are, they're getting less. We don't know why. It could just be an oversight. It could be, um, you know, all sorts of reasons. But the issue potentially can be one that leads to a division along these cultural lines. So Satan is trying this, this tactic, you know, to try and bring about internally a division. And this division is being caused by how the Hellenistic Jews are complaining against the Hebraic Jews. So the fact that the Hellenistic Jews, the widows, are being shortchanged and there's this potential for division is being exacerbated because this side is complaining against this side. Okay. Now the word complaining is uh, a very unique word. Okay, And it's meant to make us think about the Israelites in the desert complaining against God, complaining against Moses. So Luke has chosen a word that would make his readers 
think back to the Exodus of the Israelites complaining against God and realize the seriousness of what is happening here. So the word is, uh, you know, complaining, grumbling, uh, murmuring. And uh, the, the word that's chosen indicates that it is not clear speech. Now, this means that if there was, uh, you know, some lack in the Hellenistic widows, they could have just brought it up to the relevant authorities, right? Because, hey, excuse me, I noticed that, you know, how come, you know, Mrs. Abraham, you know, she's, she's getting, you know, two sacks of rice. And then, you know, Mrs., uh, you know, uh, Theophilus here, she's only getting one sack of rice, you know, you know, they're, they're about the same weight, you know, same age. You know, what, what is that the difference? You know, just bring it up to the relevant authorities and then the issue could be settled there. But they weren't speaking clearly, right? The issue was that they were, there was a mumbling, there was a murmuring taking place. And I think the picture is that this, there was this, this murmuring, this complaining, this grumbling on ground level. Instead of in the open telling the relevant authorities, it was, it was just this, this, this murmuring at ground level behind closed doors. And I, one fact about the people who like to murmur, you know, as was the case then, is the case today, that the people who like to murmur can always point to something that's wrong. Right? There's always something that's wrong. Yes, there's always something that's not done perfectly. And then the person would think to themselves, yes, you see, it's not right. There's something wrong. So I have reason to murmur. I have reason to complain. And the person who murmurs will always think that they are right in doing so. But remember, Luke has chosen this word to make us think about what happened to the Israelites. That the, their, their grumbling, that murmuring against Moses and against God was actually sinful. So there is a way in the body of Christ when something is not right, when something is not done perfectly, to bring it up in the open or you know to go privately to the to the person in charge and just plainly say rather, rather than to have this murmuring take place on the ground level. It is wrong, it is sinful, it is destructive. Because you see here, what Luke is describing is Satan's tactic. He's describing Satan's strategy to try and disrupt the church, to bring uh, silence, to stop the spread of the word of God. And so, the key word there is, I think, they murmured against See, yes, if there's something to bring up, we can bring it up, bring it up to the right person. And I think as we speak about the issue, we must ask ourselves, are my words, is my language for my brother? Or are my words, my language actually against him? Is it for my brother, for my sister? Or are are my words, my language, my tone against my brother. See, so the what was wrong, what was sinful that was happening here was that they were murmuring and they were murmuring against 
brothers and sisters that the Lord had come to die for. Instead of using language that would build up, they murmured and used language that had the potential to tear down instead. And so, how did the apostles respond to this? In verse 2, they gathered all the disciples together and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And the wait on tables is to perform that uh, administrative task of making sure, okay, everyone gets their fair share equally. Now, what do you hear when you when you read the apostles saying this, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word. Why do the apostles say it this way? They bring everyone together, they call this big ACM, and the apostles go, it would not be right. It would not be right. See, the reason why the apostles say it would not be right must be because there must have been murmuring or people saying, yeah, Hey, ha, ha, it's so unfair. You know, our, our widows are, are getting less. The apostles should do something about it. The apostles must take leadership. The apostles must sort this thing out. See, so they're saying the apostles must be doing this. And that's why when the church meeting is called, the ACM is called, the apostles say, yes, you know, I hear the murmuring. But it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Because to do that would then be to fall into the tactics of the evil one. You see, he's trying to disrupt the spread of the word of God by trying to cause division you know, through this murmuring. And if the apostles took the bait, as it were, if they fell for that and you know, addressed that, then they would have been being compromised, being distracted away from what they were called to do, which is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Satan would then have caused distraction in the apostles' ministry. He would have disrupted the spread of the word of God. Now see how the apostles solve it. So they call this big church meeting, it's ACM. And essentially, the apostles go, yes, 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 you recognize the situation. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God. And so, you know what's their solution? Their solution is, you solve it. You solve it. Right? Look at that. He says, uh, verse 3, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you. You choose. You choose the seven men who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word of God. Right? You handle it. You choose the seven men and let the seven men who are full of wisdom, full of the spirit, handle it. Now, as a side point, it is uh, remarkable that because of the apostles' insistence on teaching the word of God, that the church has been built up to this point that they could find seven men full of knowledge, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. And the proposal of the apostles, verse 5, pleased the whole group. Now that is amazing. 
Because the whole ACM recognized, yes, yes, the apostles calling, yes, their ministry must be to prayer and the word. They should not be distracted away from the main thing the Lord Jesus has given them to do. Yes, yes, let's do this instead. Let's choose these seven men and let them handle it. They all agreed that central to the health and the life of the church was the word of God being proclaimed. And that must take precedence. That must take the preeminence. We must allow the ministry of the word of God to be exercised to its full potential. There must not be anything within our power put in the way to hinder it. Now, hopefully this is something that, uh, you know, as we read, pleases you as well. That you can go, yes, 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 uh, uh, this is true, right? The people who have been called to focus on studying the Bible, teaching us the Word of God, must be as much as possible free to do that. So that we can, week in, week out, day in, day out, you know, in, in small groups, one-to-one from the pulpit, be taught the Word of God. Nothing must come in its way to hinder that. So hopefully this is something that pleases you, okay? that you agree, yes, must be central. But I say to you, if you want to adopt this, if you want to go this path, then it will cost something. It will not be easy. Because when in the hospital and he's just had a heart attack and only one pastor visits him, he may go, hey, I just had life and death situation. No, How come only one pastor visits me? Uh, then if there's the expectation that, you know, all three pastors and the intern and their wives must visit, then this is beginning to fall into that trap of uh, allowing something to hinder the word of God. Same for funerals, same for birthdays, same for weddings. We can have that expectation. Yes, yes, you know, uh, this is so important that the pastor must show up. No, no, the pastor's main responsibility. What Andrew, Andrew and I have been called to do is to give ourselves to the studying of this word so that to the best of our ability, we can preach it to you. Because we need to hear the word of God. There is no other way for the church, the body to be nourished, for it to be built up and strengthened, for it to be uh, aware of false teaching and, and be able to turn from it, except by the week in, week out, faithful proclaiming about Jesus. There is no way for individuals to come to faith. There is no way for us as we are journeying this Christian life to behold the, the majesty to cherish Jesus more, apart from the faithful, uh, spirit-dependent, prayerful preaching of the Word of God. And so Luke gives his assessment. As the church successfully, in the grace of God, navigates persecution and this division and distraction, what happens, verse 7? The Word of God spread. The word of God spread and the number of disciples increased rapidly. And Luke even adds this point. It's like this juicy tidbit. And a large number of priests, even the priests, 
you know, that, 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 that like hard ground that, you know, uh, you know, impenetrable group, even some of them became obedient to the faith. They became Christians because the church did not allow the tactics of Satan to silence them. The word of God continued to be proclaimed and so in God's kindness it spread. <clears throat> I want to end by telling you about a, a recent experience that I had when I went to this uh, conference and it was a conference called Secret Church where it is telecast from uh, US and we gathered at uh, church at 6am in the morning so that we could see the live telecast and it was like six hours of teaching, okay? It's like really intensive and it's, it's meant to mimic what happens in countries where there's opposition to Christianity. And so when, uh, you know, a teacher comes and then all the pastors, they gather and they're so hungry to be taught so that, you know, they're, they're taught for six hours straight, that sort of thing. And so the conference is run in that way so that we have a chance to remember our brothers and sisters in those countries. And we always pray for a particular country. Uh, that's our focus during the conference. And this time was the country of Iran. And uh, the topic of the conference was on the Word of God. And I was, you know, you know, in, in, inside the conference, you know, 6 a.m., you know, still a bit sleepy, but I was benefiting so much from what was being said about the Bible. You know, things that I already knew. But you know, just being reminded afresh just caused me to, to cherish, you know, what we have in our hands and what I'm called to teach. And then when we prayed for Iran, what the people did was they sent a team to Iran to interview, uh, you know, Christians there. And there was this lady who shared about how when she, uh, she grew up in a Christian family and when she went to university, she wanted to talk to people about Jesus. But, you know, she, she didn't know who to talk to. But there was this guy who came to her and said, Hey, I, I, I hear that you're a Christian. Can you tell me about Jesus? And so she, you know, told him about Jesus. And after three months, he said, I now believe in the Jesus that you've taught me. And will you marry me? And then she married him. But after they got married, very soon after she said, she found out that everything he had said was a lie. He was true blue Muslim, and after they got married, he forced her to convert to Islam. But of course, she refused. And in time, uh, she became pregnant and gave birth to a daughter. And when her daughter was four months old, the husband took the daughter away. And so she tried to get her daughter back, you know, went to you know, the high court, this and that. And the judge said, okay, you can have your daughter back only if you renounce Jesus, what is your decision? If you, if you renounce Jesus, you can have your daughter back. And then she said, I, I, I was there in the courtroom and I'm, I'm looking at the judge, but then I realized I'm not looking at the judge anymore. I'm actually seeing the face of Jesus and Jesus is there sitting, waiting for my response. And so I could not. I could not renounce Jesus. So she said, no, I wouldn't. And the judge said, okay, because of that, you cannot have your daughter. And so she was heartbroken. And uh, that time in Iran, there was this uh, earthquake. And the friend said, hey, come, 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 come and help the people. But she didn't want to. But finally, she listened to her friend and she went. And she ended up caring for over 700 children whose parents had been you know, killed at the earthquake. 
And she said, you know, I couldn't be a mother to my daughter. But God has, you know, now used me to be a mother to these 700 kids. And for the next few years, I mean, she's just sharing how her life has been transformed. And at the end of the interview, the guy asked her, so how long has it been since you saw your daughter? And the woman says, it's been 13 years. But throughout that time, she has been focused on Jesus, speaking about him, being used as his instrument. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking at all these things, you know, being reminded about the preciousness of the Bible, looking at the faith and bonus and courage of, of my Iranian brothers and sisters. And then when the time comes to pray for them, you know, I'm so moved that I'm praying through tears. You know, just, 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 just moved by what God is doing in Iran. And when the prayer time is over, I mean, my heart is still heavy. You know, it's like, it's like a mixture of, of joy of, oh, you know, what we have in the Bible. And then again, you know, that, 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 that rebuke that, you know, these Christians are going through so much more in Iran. And yet they're so bold, they're so courageous. And then you know, my heart heavy for them. I, I, I go out and it's raining and I'm, I'm just so reflective. I'm contemplative. I'm, I'm, I'm still praying to God. And there's this guy beside me and someone walks past him and the guy says, uh, the, the person asks the guy, hey, what are you doing? And he's looking at his phone and he's going, oh, I'm reading comics. And I'm just struck. How could you go through, you know, hear and learn and watch the same things I did and the first break time you're, you're reading comics? Now, what I left with that was, I wasn't judging the guy, but I was convinced that apart from the prayerful preaching of God's word, hearts will be unmoved, hearts will be hard. So I want to make a promise to you that I'm going to focus on prayerfully teaching you the word of God, that may God so enable me with the words of my mouth I will be proclaiming about the Lord Jesus till the day I die and on my knees praying that those who hear these words will not have their hearts closed. But in God's kindness, behold, behold Him, Him who is Prince and Saviour. May God help me. May God help Andrew and Andrew and help us all. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.